One of the most frightening and hideous scenes in the Bible will unfold before our eyes today. No Hollywood horror movie can compare with the horror that we're going to see today. No haunted house can compare with what Jesus saw that night in the Garden of Gethsemane. No Halloween store could stock up enough scary monsters and creatures to compare with what Jesus saw that he would experience on the cross at Calvary. We will see in God's word today what Jesus saw on that night before he was betrayed and before he died. And if you could see it, it would scare the living daylights out of you. What Jesus saw that night is scarier than anything you might experience in a haunted house. What Jesus saw in the garden is scarier than any 80s horror movie monster that has ever graced the screen. Jason Voorhees from Friday the 13th, Freddy Krueger from A Nightmare on Elm Street, or Michael Myers from Halloween. None of those guys are anywhere near as scary as what Jesus saw one night as he was praying in a garden while his best friends were busy sawing logs and counting sheep. No Halloween mask or Halloween horror movie or Halloween store with all of its scary monsters can come close to the horror that Jesus saw that night in the Garden of Gethsemane. On the night before Jesus died, he celebrated, if you will, the most hair-raising, spine-tingling, blood-curdling, bone-chilling, and nerve-wracking Halloween ever. And here's what I mean when I say that Jesus celebrated this kind of Halloween. I mean that he came face-to-face with the absolute horror of the cross. He looked down into the scariest thing that any human being could ever see. And so I say that Jesus celebrated Halloween, and by that I mean that he stared down what was coming his way on the cross, and he gladly and joyfully pressed on. He celebrated the scariest thing that any human being could see, becoming sin on the cross. And when Jesus stared down all the horrors that were awaiting him on the cross, though in his humanity he desired that it pass him by, he still pressed on because he loves us. And he did it with and for joy. As the preacher of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12 too, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What enabled Jesus to celebrate the most hair-raising, spine-tingling, blood-curdling, bone-chilling, and nerve-wracking Halloween that ever was? Answer, it was the joy of sharing eternity with us. The joy and the glory and the love that the Father, that he had with the Father that he longed to share with us. What kept Jesus going was the joy that was set before him. That's what kept him going, the joy that was set before Jesus that he would bring us into the glory and into the love that he shared with his Father and with the Holy Spirit. 
And so the glory that we are being brought into for all of eternity is the love that exists between God the Father and His Son Jesus. And we get to spend eternity getting caught up in their love. That's the joy that was set before Jesus that enabled Him to endure the cross. It was us getting to share in their love. And it was this thought us sharing in their love for all of eternity. It was this thought that enabled Jesus to endure the cross. It was the joy of his elect people being gathered around God's throne where Jesus is seated and us finding our joy in him. Us finally and forever and perfectly glorifying and enjoying God forever. That's what enabled Jesus to endure suffering. That we would be able to glorify and enjoy God forever. But make no mistake about it, this was a very scary thing that Jesus was facing. And so we will get front row seats today in Mark's gospel to the scariest, most hideous, frightening, alarming, terrifying, petrifying, hair-raising, spine-tingling, blood-curdling, bone-chilling, horrifying, nerve-wracking, fearsome, unnerving, and eerie scenes in the Bible. And it will happen in a garden. We're going to Gethsemane. And it's as if all the horrors of every Halloween that ever was or will be will descend on Jesus this night. We will see Jesus come to grips with the weightiness of what it would mean that he would bear the wrath and anger of a holy God against our sin on the cross. And because Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for our sins on the cross, then this glorious and heart-liberating truth emerges for everyone who trusts in him. God's not mad at you. God's not mad at you. If you have turned from your sin and your rebellion and you trust in Christ alone for your salvation, The good news of the gospel is that God's not mad at you anymore. This is the good news of the gospel. Now, if you haven't turned from living for you, and you are not trusting in Jesus, then the bad news is that God is angry at you because of your sin. Now, you may push back at that idea that God could be angry at sin. Maybe you don't want a God who is angry at sin. Maybe we just want a, a loving God who's warm and fuzzy. But as Tim Keller says, so it makes no sense to say, I don't want a wrathful God, I want a loving God. If God is loving and good, he must be angry at evil. We want God to be angry when there are shootings in churches and synagogues and workplaces, don't we? We want God to be bothered by that kind of evil, and we should be bothered by that kind of evil, Right? Back to what Tim Keller was saying. If God is loving and good, he must be angry at evil, angry enough to do something about it. Consider this also. If you don't believe in a God of wrath, you have no idea of your value. Here's what I mean. A God without wrath has no need to go to the cross and suffer incredible agony and die in order to save you. Picture on the left a God who pays nothing in order to love you. And picture on the right the God of the Bible who, because he's angry at evil, must go to the cross, 
absorb the debt, pay the ransom, and suffer immense torment. How valuable are you to the God of the Bible? Valuable enough that he would go to these depths for you. Your conception of God's love and of your value in his sight will only be as big as your understanding of his wrath. The bad news is that God is angry with you because of your sin. So your conception of God's love and your value in his sight will only be as big as your understanding of his wrath and his anger. Yes, he loves you. And oh, how he loves you. That's why he sent his son. He went to incredible lengths to save you. That's how valuable you are. But you were born a sinner and you have rebelled against him. And you have to give account for that. And if you don't turn to Jesus in faith, then you will stand before God one day and you will give account. And without Jesus, you cannot stand before God and be justified. And what awaits you is eternal punishment in hell. And I don't want that for any of you. I don't want that for any of you. And you can avoid that by running to Jesus. So why not come home today? Come home. Come home to the God who loves you and who gave his son for you. And trust in his son. And you'll be adopted into his forever family. And then, guess what will be true of you? The hope of the gospel that God's not mad at you. All you have to do to have this statement become true for you is to simply open the empty hands of faith. Perhaps you'll do that right now. Most preachers do this at the end of the sermon. I'm doing it at the beginning. Perhaps you'll do that right now. Just open the empty hands of faith and believe. And while you're at it, Open your Bibles to Mark 14. Let's set the context here. Jesus had just celebrated the Passover with the disciples. We saw that last week when he inaugurated the new covenant, which would come to fulfillment uh, later on the cross and through his resurrection. And after this, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives with the disciples. And Jesus told the disciples, every single one of you guys are going to betray me or abandon me. You're going to leave me. Of course, the disciples did not believe that Jesus had the ability to predict the future So they affirmed, we will never abandon you, Jesus. But we'll see in a few more paragraphs, they will abandon Jesus. And then after this solemn announcement of their falling away, they're abandoning Jesus, he and his disciples go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane was situated on the Mount of Olives just east of Jerusalem. And this becomes the setting, the Garden of Gethsemane. A garden becomes the setting of one of the most horrifying scenes in the Bible. It's here in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus will experience unbounded torment of soul as he confronts what awaits him on the cross. The sinless Son of God is coming face to face with our sin. Your sin and my sin, which we all happened to commit so effortlessly this week, didn't we? We just... Committed sins. We didn't, some of us, didn't, we didn't even fight. We just gave in. Effortlessly doing these things. And Jesus came face to face of being the one who would take responsibility for all of it on the cross. It's amazing. Mark 14, look at verse 
32, and hear the word of the Lord. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And so Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him away from the other disciples in order that they may go pray together. And Jesus instructed the other disciples to sit down and wait for him while he goes off to pray. And then Mark tells us in verse 33 that Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And these two words have the idea of this deep distress, this deep grief, deep trouble, deep anguish in his soul. Literally, the phrase greatly distressed means to be astonished. Jesus is flabbergasted at what awaits him on the cross. And the word trouble means to be overcome with horror. So Jesus is astonished at what awaits him at the cross, and therefore he's overcome with horror. But then Jesus confides in these three disciples about the emotional torment that he was undergoing in verse 34. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, remain here and watch. Here we see a different word for very sorrowful in Greek. Mark uses this even more intense word in verse 34 than what he used back in verse 33. So now the distress of Jesus is even more heightened. He's very sorrowful, very deeply grieved. He's overwhelmed with what awaits. The full weight of what was about to transpire was quickly descending upon Jesus. And so Jesus leaves the disciples to pray to his father. He's so overwhelmed that the only natural recourse is for Jesus to get alone and to pray to his father. Look at verse 35. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. It's going to take a miracle today. It's going to take a miracle for us to begin to see exactly what is transpiring here. This horrific scene is so far beyond our understanding. We're only going to scratch the surface today, but we must plunge ourselves into the darkness of this scene and pray that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes to see what Jesus saw before him in the garden that night. As the old hymn, Give Me a Sight, O Savior, states. And let this be our prayer now. Oh, help me understand it. Help me take it in what it meant to thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. And this is what we need to see. Here in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is beginning to confront head-on the deepest agony of the cross. And this agony will go far beyond the physical suffering of the cross. Jesus is going to be blamed for your sin. Jesus is going to be blamed and take the punishment for your sin. All the times you mouthed off to your parents as a teenager, all the times you said all those four-letter words, the lustful thoughts, the desire to exact revenge, 
the stealing, the gossip and the slander, all the bitterness in your heart that's bubbling over towards that one person that you can't stand. I could go on. All that we have done that brings us shame and guilt and embarrassment, Jesus would claim as his own on the cross. Treat me, Father, as if I did all those things that they have done against your holy law. And what causes Jesus to be so overwhelmed here is the contents of the cup that he must drink because of our sin. His desire to be spared from what awaits him on the cross will give way to the Father's will so that we would be spared. Amazing. And so picture Jesus with his face on the ground, overwhelmed by what is about to come. He prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Luke tells us in his gospel in chapter 22, verse 44, that Jesus was sweating so much that his sweat was like great drops of blood falling to the ground. But why? Why all the stress and the emotional torment? Why all of the agony of soul? Why is Jesus' sweat like great drops of blood falling to the ground? Why is he praying to his Father and praying that this experience would pass him by, that he wouldn't have to go through with it? What is it that is causing Jesus to be so overwhelmed this way? Is it his impending death and the physical suffering, the beatings that will precede it? Or is there something, could there be something more hideous and more appalling than the physical suffering that he must endure? So please understand, it's not merely the physical pain and suffering that awaits Jesus, as horrible as that is. What is troubling him is that he will take the blame for our sins and he will be on the receiving end of God's wrath. And we see why. It is one thing to stand for the holy God and answer for our own sins, isn't it? It's quite another to stand and take responsibility for all the sins of the world. Every perversion, every murder, every bit of hate, every abuse, every sexual sin, envy, malice, gossip, slander, all of that was about to be reckoned to the holy Son of God who never sinned, ever. And so why all the agony? Why all the distress? Jesus' request to his Father in verse 36 reveals the answer. Remove this cup from me. But what is this cup? Why doesn't Jesus want to drink from this cup, whatever that cup is? What's Jesus talking about? What is in this cup that Jesus saw that he does not want to have to drink? 
The contents of the cup that Jesus wants to pass by him are the most hideous, most frightening, and most alarming, most terrifying, most petrifying, most hair-raising, most spine-tingling, most blood-curdling, most bone-chilling, most horrifying, most nerve-wracking, most fearsome, and most unnerving thing that any human being can face. The contents of the cup Jesus is going to drink. It's the wrath of a holy God intended for the sins of those who would trust in him. That is what is troubling Jesus in the garden. He is coming face to face with with the wrath of God, with God's anger. He is seeing what we deserve. He's getting a picture of what all of us deserve to land on us. And he's seeing that it's all going to land on him. He's seeing the wrath of God that we all deserve. And he is seeing it fall on him on the cross. The cup of wrath is spoken of in scripture as the judgment of God in several places in the Old Testament. Let me read them to you. In Psalm 75 verse 6 through 8. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Habakkuk 2.16, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. Jeremiah 25, 15, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel said to me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. Isaiah 51, 17, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. And we also see the cup mentioned in the book of Revelation. Revelation 14, verse 9 through 10, and another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And so the cup that Jesus is asking his father to be removed from him is a picture of the wrath of God against sin, against your sin, and against mine. So no wonder Jesus just collapses and falls to the ground and prays to his father. No wonder he begins sweating great drops of blood. He has come face to face with the reality that he will bear the sins of his people and he will be the target of God's righteous anger. Every sin that you did so freely this week that you feel shame and guilt for, Jesus took responsibility for that on the cross for you. Amazing. 
So it's not so much the physical suffering of the cross that Jesus is asking to be removed from. It is a pain that is far greater and far deeper. He will become the center of God's wrath and anger. And what drove him was love. God gave his son for his enemies. Amazing. As Paul says in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give all things? In other words, Paul's saying, if God gave up his son for you to take your blame on the cross, how is he not going to take care of you? Is he just going to ignore you now? Paul's saying, no. He's going to graciously give you everything that you need. He gave up his son. John Piper said, what is the greatest obstacle between you as a sinner and you with every need and desire met eternally happy in God? Most of us would say our guilt or God's wrath. Romans 8.32 says God's love for his son is the biggest obstacle in the way. Could God, would God overcome his cherishing, admiring, white-hot, infinite bond with the son and hand him over to be lied about? Betrayed, denied, abandoned, mocked, flogged, spit on, nailed to a cross, pierced, and butchered. That is the biggest obstacle to my salvation. And the text says he did. God did not spare his own son. He gave him up to the worst possible suffering. The greatest obstacle between us and God is Jesus. Would God send his son to take our place on the cross? And Romans 8.32 says that he did. And this is why Jesus experienced unbounded, unlimited torment of soul and distress and agony because he would experience his father's wrath on the cross. And because God gave his son and because Jesus drank the cup and because the Holy Spirit has applied Jesus' work to you, then that means that this is true of you, Christian. God's not mad at you. God's not mad at you. You heard about his anger towards sin in these passages I read about the cup, right? God has every right to be mad at every sinner. But if you're trusting in Christ, he's not mad at you. Why? Because Jesus drank every last drop of God's wrath against your sin and against mine from the cup. Every last drop for every one of your sins. Amazing. And what makes this setting, the Garden of Gethsemane, so interesting is that the word Gethsemane means olive press. In Jesus' day, they would take the olives and and roll a massive rock over them until all of the oil was pressed out. And so here, it is in the olive press that Jesus will be pressed and squeezed in his soul as he confronts his destiny to redeem the elect people of God. He's squeezed in his soul and sweats great drops of blood. William Lane, commenting on Jesus' in the garden, going to pray to his father, says this, that Jesus went to be with the father for an interlude before his betrayal, but found hell rather than heaven open before him. This is why Jesus asks if there is another way. 
Is there some alternative? If there's some other way, Father, would you provide it? Do I have to become sin? Must you pour your wrath out on me? Now, obviously Jesus does not hear the answer that he in his humanity wanted to hear from the Father. Keep in mind that as God, of course, Jesus wanted to go to the cross. Going to the cross was the eternal plan of God. So this is Jesus in his humanity asking if there's another way. And so he prays a second time. And Mark tells us he repeated the the request with the same words. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Look at verse 37. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping. For their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Mark tells us that Jesus prays two more times. Jesus comes and goes three times, and he always finds the disciples sleeping. But he knows that this is the way. This is his Father's will. He must experience God's wrath and anger. He must drink the cup of God's wrath to its dregs. He must drain every drop of God's righteous anger. He knows the hour has come, and Judas is on his way to the garden to betray him. The cup cannot pass his lips, and the hour has come. And he, for the joy that was set before him, would endure the cross. And why? It's because of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave. Don't you just love those words? John 3, 16 never sounded so beautiful, so familiar, but hear them anew today. God so loved you that he gave his only son for your sin and your rebellion. Amazing. What a Savior we celebrate today. What a God we celebrate today. I mean, what kind of God are we dealing with here? What kind of God are we dealing with? Not one that we would create. Jack Miller explains the kind of God we're dealing with. He says this, What can you say about a plan that includes the God of the universe sending his only son to die for those who hate him? And what's more, adopts those same enemies into his family as dearly loved children, all with the rights and privileges of the firstborn heir. Paul says that the only response is praise for his glorious grace. How different from us is the way the Father deals with his enemies. I don't want to sacrifice for my enemies. I want to go after them, to set them straight, to prove they are wrong, to vindicate myself. When we look at the cross and we see the love of the Father that sent the Son and the love of the Son who endured the wrath of God for us, we are in touch with something that is completely foreign to our natural way of thinking. It is utterly humbling to know that I have been saved from the pit by such great love. 
I'm stricken by the wonder of it, but I'm also overflowing with joy to the praise of his glorious grace. That's what Jesus' death should lead to, the praise of his glorious grace. So give thanks to God today, Christian, that Jesus absorbed all of God's wrath against you so that you might absorb the gospel in him. As Steve Brown likes to say, God's not mad at you, Christian. Thank God he isn't. That's awesome, isn't it? That's incredible. And that's the gospel grace. If you are a child of God and you have been adopted into his family by faith in Christ, he's not mad at you anymore. Not even in the little bitty tiny bit. Why? Because Jesus saw in the garden and then experienced on the cross the scariest, most hideous, frightening, alarming, terrifying, petrifying, hair-raising, spine-tingling, blood-curdling, bone-chilling, horrifying, nerve-wracking, fearsome, unnerving, and eerie things that could happen to any human being. And because of what Jesus did for us, now God is rejoicing over us with singing like a newborn mom, a newborn mom, a mom holding a newborn and just singing over her newborn with joy and love. That's how God feels about you, like, like you're a newborn and he's just holding you in his arms and, and singing over you. Just listen to him sing over you. The Lord has joy over us now. Can you believe that? The triune God has joy over us. His joy protects us from his wrath and anger forever. The anger is removed. He will never pour his wrath out on his children. He'll never have an outburst like we do as parents, right? You do, don't you, parents? You have those outbursts where you're just like, just stop. God will never do that with his children. So let me say it again to you. God's not mad at you. Some of you don't believe that today. Some of you are Christians, but you live with this sense that you think God's ticked at you. You think he's mad at you. You think he rolls his eyes in disgust at you. You think he doesn't even like you. You are wrong. Nobody likes being wrong, but I'm going to tell you today, if you think that way, you are wrong. He rejoices over you. He delights in you, and he does it all because of Jesus. You are his beloved. That is your identity. And when God sees you, he sees Jesus. And you have as much right to be in God's presence right now as Jesus does. That's how tight your union with Christ is. You, with all of your sin and mistakes and bumbling and fumbling and how fickle and unfaithful you are, you have just as much right to be in God's presence right now as Jesus does. If you are one of his children adopted into his family, then you have reason to rejoice big time today because God rejoices over you because of his son Jesus. You, Christian, are justified. You've been declared righteous just as if you had never sinned and just as if you had always obeyed. That's the gospel. Adam sinned where? In the garden. And he blew it. For all of us. That's why you're born a sinner. That's why I'm born a sinner. Because our first parents sinned and they rebelled against God. Where? In the garden. And then there's Jesus in the garden. In the garden of Gethsemane. Accepting his mission with joy. So that you could be declared 
righteous so that you would have every right to stand before God's throne unashamed and with no fear. Amazing. And if you're not a Christian, and sadly, none of this is true for you. God is angry at your sin and it must be dealt with. And the good news is that it can be taken care of today. It can be taken care of right now if you just simply trust in what Jesus did for you. And there's that word again, trust. We saw that last week. Turn from living for you and trust in Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And then you'll be saved. It takes trust. And what was Jesus doing in the garden but trusting his Father in heaven? Jesus had to trust his Father so that one day you could trust in him and experience salvation. But if you have not repented and admitted your sins and admitted your rebellion against God, then you need to fear because God is mad at you. His anger is kindled against you. He still loves you. Oh, he loves you so much. He sent Jesus. There's the proof. But apart from Jesus, you will experience the scariest, most hideous, frightening, alarming, terrifying, petrifying, hair-raising, spine-tingling, blood-curdling, bone-chilling, horrifying, nerve-wracking, fearsome, unnerving, and eerie things for all of eternity. But the good news is that you can escape his anger and wrath and escape eternal punishment by running to Jesus. Will you do that today? I hope you do. Trust in Jesus. Come home. Come home today. Won't you come home? Come join the family of God. There's hope for every single person here. It doesn't matter what you've done. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. Why not leave today knowing that God's not mad at you anymore, but that he's rejoicing over you? That would be the best way to walk out of these doors today. You came in as God's enemy, and you left as his child, his son his daughter. Won't you come home today? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great love. I don't know how you do it, Lord, because we choose to sin all the time. And sometimes we don't even fight or try to resist, God. We just give in because we love it. We love harboring bitterness. We love our jealousy and lust and worry. And you keep on loving us. It's all because of Jesus. We thank you for what he did for us. And if anyone is here today, God, would you draw them if they don't know you? Open their eyes. Regenerate them now by the power of your Holy Spirit that they may turn and trust in your Son. Thank you that you are rejoicing over us right now. It is Amazing. In Jesus' name, amen.